this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, where we will spend most of our time in chapter 11 and 12. Hebrews chapter 11. What kind of expectations do you have from God when you put your faith in Him? Do you not expect Him to give you great prosperity, great health, safety, a thriving, cohesive family, a job that recognizes you for your worth and allows for advancement? What do you expect from God when you put your faith in Him? You look at the Scriptures and you see multiple examples of people who obey God and as a result have spectacular blessing poured out upon them on this earth. I mean, think of Enoch who avoided death. He was transferred directly to heaven in a chariot. Think of Abraham who believed God regarding his son and died a peaceful death. Think of Joseph who, although he suffered... He had faith in God during those difficult times. And yet everything turned out all right in the end. He turned out to be second in command in all of Egypt and he was solely responsible for the salvation of Egypt and Israel when the famine came. Think of Joshua, who was able to see the promised land and able to drive out the Canaanites and was able to die in the land that his forefathers could only dream about. Think of Elijah, who was able to see God provide for him firsthand on several occasions. What about Job, who, although he had a rough patch of suffering, ended up living a pretty prosperous and long life. Think of Esther and Ruth and the Apostle John. We could say of all of them, they lived happily ever after. Isn't that how it's supposed to be? That when we obey God, God blesses us? But is that the whole story? Does every believer in the Bible finish happily on this earth? Does every true believer in the Bible finish life in prosperity? In Hebrews 11, we have a list of examples of people who are faithful to God. And I want to begin reading with verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So there you go. Happy endings. If we obey, we ride off into the sunset with no troubles at all. Or do we? I don't know about you, but I regularly hear of genuine believers who suffer with cancer without ever having gone into remission. I hear of believers who lose loved ones in car accidents. I hear of believers who are the victims of fraud and violence and real crime. I hear of believers who go blind, who die of starvation, who are financially strapped, 
And if you don't see this or believe that this happens, then you are putting your head in the sand. Or you don't understand the Scriptures, what they say about a genuine believer. As Americans, we probably don't know any any martyrs personally, those who died for the sake of Christ. But... And because of it, we dismiss that idea today as non-existent. That no one in our day dies for the sake of Christ. But according to historians, more people were killed in the 20th century for standing for Christ than in the previous 19 centuries combined. See, we don't understand what goes on even in our day because we live in such freedom free from opposition. The Scriptures teach us that the world is no friend to grace. So don't buy into the idea that if you live perfectly enough, then no trouble will come your way because suffering, as we've seen throughout our study in Job, is real. Suffering is real. And sometimes it feels arbitrary. It doesn't seem fair. Let's look at verse 35 again. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was did not receive what was promised. As a follow-up to our study in Job, I want to take three sermons to talk about why we suffer today. We'll talk about why we suffer. And then the next two weeks, why God allows evil. Because there is a God-ordained purpose for suffering, we need to respond to suffering properly. We need to respond to our suffering in a way that draws us closer to God because often that is what God is doing in our suffering. And much of what we will talk about today has been borrowed from Dr. Don Carson's book, How Long, O Lord? A Reflection on Suffering and Evil. So I'm indebted to him. There are two ditches to avoid when it comes to thinking about suffering that has come or will come in your life. There are two ditches that we need to avoid. This is often the case when it comes to scriptural doctrines or anything in life often, there are two ditches that we need to avoid. The first ditch is that all suffering is a result of my own sin. This is what Job's three friends were trying to say about Job. You're suffering because you've done something to God. If you're suffering, it has to be because of your evil. So that's the one ditch we need to avoid. We've got to avoid going too far and speaking on behalf of God where God hasn't spoken because we've seen that here in this passage alone that true believers do suffer. 
True believers do suffer even to the point where their life ends in suffering. They're tortured. They're sawn in two. And they die without receiving the promise. Okay, so, so that kind of thing happens. So this ditch is one we need to avoid. That, that all suffering comes from evil. That's not the case. But there's another ditch we need to avoid. And that is the ditch that can we can fall into when we have a long study like we've had in the book of Job. That all suffering is arbitrary. This is the other ditch. That is, it's not related to my sin in any way. So, any suffering that comes in my life, it can't be because of my sin because I've seen the example of Job. So, so that means it's arbitrary. It just happens. So just deal with it. And what I want to show you today is that there are multiple reasons for suffering. And some of them are because of your own sin. And that's why I titled this message, You Might Not Be Job. Because after a study like this, we can think, well, I must be Job. I'm suffering. I'm a believer. But sometimes even believers suffer as a result of their own sin. We'll get to that. Let me give you the first reason or the first cause for suffering. There, I believe there are at least three of them in the Scriptures. Three causes for why God allows suffering in your life. The first cause is for unknown reasons, or what we could call innocent suffering. This is what we talked about in Job. Let me take you to Luke chapter 13. And I'll show you two examples in the Gospels of innocent suffering, or suffering for unknown reasons. This is what happened with Job, right? He doesn't know why he's suffering. This is the question that he was trying to ask. God, what is going on here? I've been blameless in the sense that I've been upright. I've been a righteous person. I'm not saying I'm, not, I'm sinless. I'm definitely not sinless. But the amount of suffering that I'm receiving right now is not consistent with the amount of sin that I've committed. If that were the case, other people would suffer more than I. And so Job didn't know why he was suffering. But, and that's why I call it un, for unknown reasons. Look at chapter 13, verse 1, because Jesus gives an example of why some suffering takes place. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? They were killed by Pilate mercilessly. So were they worse off than other Galileans? Is the question Jesus is asking. Look at verse 3. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, whether it be a corrupt act by a leader, Pilate mixing their blood with sacrifices, or it be a natural catastrophe, the Tower of Siloam falling. 
when that type of suffering happens, when someone is killed as a result of that, Jesus asks the question, were those people who died in those two situations more guilty, more worthy of death than, let's say, all the people in Jerusalem? And what was his answer in both cases? Clearly, he says, no. No, that's not why they died. They were not being punished. They died for unknown reasons. So, we could ask the question, is the latest tsunami in Japan God's judgment on their country? Or were the people who died at the World Trade Center being punished by God because they didn't do their devotions that morning? What about Hurricane Katrina? Now, he could have been judging Japan. He could have been judging America. But we can't say for sure. Because if we did, we would be doing what Job's three friends did. Speaking on behalf of God where God hasn't spoken. So we can't stand at the, at the base of the World Trade Center and preach, you deserve this. Jesus says, when that Tower of Siloam fell, they were no more guilty than anyone else. These types of things happen. No, they don't happen randomly. They don't happen uh, by chance. God is in control of all of them, but they happen for unknown reasons, not to God, but to us. And so we can't say that it is specifically punishment. And so the lesson that Jesus teaches because of these tragedies that have happened is what? He says it two times. Look at verse 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What were they supposed to learn from these tragedies that took place? They were supposed to learn that, that we're all going to perish one day. And he was talking about more than simply dying physically because he's saying unless you repent spiritually, you will die spiritually. Was he saying that if they repented spiritually, they would not die physically? Not at all. He was saying, if you don't repent, you're going to be judged by God in the way that you think these people are being judged. We're all going to perish. The question is, have you repented before God? So, there are unknown reasons. Turn to John chapter 9. We'll see a second example in the Gospels of suffering that happens for unknown reasons, or we could call it innocent suffering. Okay, and I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this point because we've spent so much time in Job, but I do want to show you this from other passages of Scripture. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man... Or his parents, that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So when this young man, or when this child was born blind, 
his parents had no idea why he was born blind. As this kid was growing up and as he became a man, he had no idea why he was born blind. We know why now. Because we look back and we see that Jesus healed this man. And he used it to display the power of God. That's why Jesus says he did it. Now, for, for us, or for that family at that time, it was for unknown reasons that he was born blind, that he had to suffer this infirmity for his entire life. Well, for, for the, his entire life before he met Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is, suffering is not always directly connected to a person's sin. Ditch number one. It's not always that way. The second ditch to avoid is the ditch that takes it too far to the other extremes. To the other extreme. It says, well, since there are cases like Job and the blind man and the Tower of Siloam, then that means that I must be suffering for unknown reasons too. That I must be suffering innocently. That God just causes suffering to fall on whomever He pleases. We can't ultimately know why. So we'll just give that up and say... I must be good with God. And my suffering is not tied to my sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is teaching the Corinthians how to be respectful when they eat the Lord's Supper together. They should not take it lightly. This is a very serious matter. And it seems from this passage, doesn't seem, it is clear from this passage that there are specific sufferings that come as a result of a person's sin. Look at verse 27 with me. Chapter 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread, that is, the bread of the Lord's table, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. He says, you need to eat worthily. You need to take it seriously when you have the Lord's table. You shouldn't be, uh, you, you shouldn't come to the Lord's table drunk. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, uh, you, you should certainly wait for other people so that so that they can take of it too. That you should examine yourself to make sure that you're doing it in a right motive, with a right motive. Look at verse 30 again. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. What is Paul saying? saying as a result of your own sin, God is trying to get your attention. And that's why some among you, Corinthians, are sick. Some among you are weak. And some of you even sleep, which is the idea of are dead. There is a time in life when we sin and God punishes us, that our suffering comes because of our sin. And I would call this next cause of suffering discipline. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. 
This is called discipline. I wouldn't necessarily call it punishment, but I would call it correction. Okay, because when we were looking at the Elihu speeches, I said that Christ has already received all of our punishment, but discipline is something different than punishment. Okay, discipline is is correcting us, leading us back to where we ought to go. And so some of us are sick and some are even sleep because of our sin. He's directing us. It's not as if he's saying, you did this, now I'm going to bring my hand of wrath upon you because his hand of wrath has already been poured out on the Son. Okay, so let's read about this in chapter 12, verse 4. The writer of Hebrews says, You have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, that is, our fathers, for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplined us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. Why does this discipline come? Notice what the struggle is against in verse 4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. The struggle that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is our struggle against sin. And notice why the author mentions this, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation. And then he goes on to talk about discipline. He's saying, I'm doing this to encourage you. I mean, how could, how could the writer of Hebrews talk about discipline as a word of encouragement? How encouraging is that to be disciplined by God? Verse 6 gives the answer. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. How is discipline an encouragement? It is because the Lord disciplines only those whom He loves. Well, why do we need discipline? Why can't we just go on living without discipline? Verse 10. For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share His holiness. Discipline is used to make us more like our Savior, to eliminate the sin from our lives. And He says later in verse 14 that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Okay, So we are on a quest to see the Lord. Well, how can we see the Lord? Only if we're holy. Verse 14. Well, how can we become holy? Verse 10. Through the discipline of our loving 
Heavenly Father. Discipline is a good thing. And that's why the author of Hebrews takes so much time to emphasize perseverance and standing up under trial. He, he talks about the danger of falling away. Saying that, that, that these warning passages are here for your correction to, to help you stay on the right path. God disciplines us to keep us faithful, to keep our focus on the right goal because often in life we, sh- we shift it away from what we are to be doing. So God brings discipline. Why? Because He loves us. Every loving father disciplines their child. And if God is our Father and He loves us, and He is and He does, then He will discipline us. And so if you are regularly going through trials and you are being disciplined by God and you come to Hebrews and you read through some of these warning passages that really shake the cores of your faith, you regularly are convicted about your own spiritual condition as you read through Hebrews, then thank God because He is keeping you on the right path with these warning passages. Don't see these as a bad thing. He's using them to spare you from destruction because without holiness, which comes through dis- from discipline, you will not see the Lord. But the main reason that you need discipline is found in verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Discipline proves that you are a child of God. If you're not receiving discipline from God, then you're not His child. Okay, That doesn't mean all the time. If you're not receiving discipline from God in this life in one way or the other, then you are not a child of God according to verse 8. And so what does discipline look like? Well, this discipline comes in all sorts of forms. It comes through war, plague, illness, rebuke, personal thorns in the flesh, loss of loved ones, loss of status, personal opposition, financial struggles, and many other things. God can discipline us in many ways, and He does it to correct us, to keep us on the right path. So that means that that there is another reason why God might allow suffering into your life. It may be innocent suffering. You may have none, done nothing that's worthy of what you are experiencing right now. But there may be something else here. God may be getting you to think, at least, about your own condition. And often this is what happens when deep trials come. The first thing that that believers often think of is what have I done to deserve this? Is there something in my life that needs to be corrected? I think that's a wise question to ask as long as it's done in a reverent way. What have I done? Is there something that I need to correct? God loves those whom He disciplines. He disciplines those whom He loves. The third cause of suffering, one is unknown reasons or innocent suffering. Two is for discipline. And the third cause of suffering 
is to learn obedience. Turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. God may simply be allowing this suffering to come into your life so that you can learn obedience. This is what happened with Job. He needed to learn a little bit more about God. Certainly, he did have to repent of some things because he did take it a little bit too far in his thought about God. But God often teaches us through our suffering. Chapter 5, and we'll read uh, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. And then skip down to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 8 says, Although he was a son, Jesus Christ, although he was the Son of God, he was God incarnate, he learned obedience. How did he learn obedience? What does it say there in verse 8? He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. One of the reasons that you might be suffering is simply to learn obedience. The idea is not that Christ was disobedient and that suffering corrected him like it does for us often when we stray from God, but in his humble state of becoming a man, he had to learn lessons of obedience. And in order for him to reach higher levels of obedience, those levels could only be attained through suffering. That's what this verse says. He had to learn obedience from the things which he suffered. In other words, he couldn't have earned that level of obedience or learned that level of obedience if he had not suffered. So in a sense, Jesus grew to perfect obedience. Not that he was immorally, uh, immoral or morally imperfect before his suffering, but the final product of perfect gold could only be realized through the fires of suffering. Do you believe that Christ suffered? And do you believe that he learned obedience through his suffering? If you do, then why do you think you would be exempt from suffering? Did not Paul suffer? He, he called it, at, at least one time he had the thorn in the flesh that he wanted to get rid of, but could not. Did not many believers before you suffer? And if Jesus suffered, and if all believers suffer, then why would we be exempt? That's why Paul can say in Philippians 3, I want to participate in his sufferings. That's why the psalmist can say in chapter 119, verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted because then I could learn your statutes. I couldn't have learned them as well if I didn't suffer. Sometimes we see the clearest when life is the darkest. God teaches us through suffering. So we can suffer for unknown reasons. We can suffer because of our own sin or for discipline. And we can also suffer just simply to learn obedience. And maybe those first and third ones are connected. That God allows us to suffer 
We don't know why, but it could very well be simply for us to learn obedience more. We may never know. So suffering is needful for a Christian because only those who are disciplined, only those who suffer can be called Christians. How godly would would you be without suffering? How close to God would you be if God had never brought anything difficult into your life as a Christian? Let me turn our attention now to responses to suffering. First of all, improper responses. Improper responses to suffering. Number one, we could respond like Job's wife. Curse God and die. You know what? This is not worth it. God's not worth being served if He's going to do this to you after all you've done for Him. See, she was expecting that God should give a one-for-one correspondence to His obedience. If He obeyed God in all these ways, then God had to bless Him. Well, in a sense, that is true. But not in this life. So we could respond like Job's wife. We could respond like Job did after a while. We could charge God with injustice. I don't deserve this. I demand to have a conversation with you, God. I will ask you the questions and you will answer me and tell me why this is happening. We can charge God with injustice. Or we could try to bargain with God. We could try we could demand that God take our suffering away. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for it. Paul did pray that the thorn in the flesh would be removed. But we shouldn't demand God to take it away. You must Take this away. I've obeyed you. I've prayed. I've done all these things. Why can't you take this away? And when he doesn't take it away, we're either disappointed with God or we feel that our faith is so weak that we have to work harder or dig down a little bit deeper. When the problem is that we should not be demanding from God that He grant us prosperity because we've suffered or because we've obeyed. Part of living as a faithful child of God, the God who controls all things, is trusting in Him even when things are difficult. Even in the midst of suffering. We have to believe that God is working them out for our good because that's what the Scripture tells us. So those are some improper ways we can respond to suffering. Let me give you five proper ways to respond to your suffering. Number one, get a big picture perspective. This life is not all that there is to live for. God is doing something greater in you that's going to to last for the life to come. He's making you holy. He's making you to be like Christ so that Christ can present you on that day as spotless before Himself as that that beautiful bride that He demands. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Where does holiness come from? It comes from discipline. So get a big picture perspective. That's the only way that you can obey the command that comes in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 that says, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into trials of various kinds. Why would we ever do that, James? Why would we ever take joy in trials? That doesn't make sense. The only way you can do that, believer, is if you have a big picture perspective. If you recognize that this life is not all that there is to live for and that God is doing something in you that's far better than the struggle that you're facing now. 
second proper response is repentance, if necessary. Okay? God may not be disciplining you. He may not be correcting you. But if He is, then you need to repent of what you've done and be made right before God. If there is sin in your life, if there is something that God's trying to get your attention about, then you need to repent. Thirdly, you need to have faith. Remember your standing in Christ. That, that Christ has said that through Him we have peace. Through We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that the only way that we can persevere is when we mix our faith with suffering. That, that faith and suffering work out to perseverance. So, get a big picture perspective. Repent if necessary. Have faith in Christ. And then, fourthly, get a future focus. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 1. Get a future focus. Okay, this goes along with the first one. Have a big picture perspective. But let me show you some verses that go along with this idea. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How in the world could Jesus endure what He did except if He had a future focus? He recognized that before glory comes suffering for Jesus Christ. Suffering, then glory. Same for you. You're not exempt from suffering in this lifetime. You will not be if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Suffering first, then glory in the life to come. Get a future focus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Fifthly, reflect on Christ. Okay, we saw that part of getting a future focus is reflecting on Christ, but here I'm going to state it more clearly because verse 3 says this, For consider Him, Jesus Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we stand up in these trials? How do we stand up in these difficult times of suffering? Consider the One who endured such hostility for you. For imperfect you. For enemy. For his enemy, you. He endured all that suffering for you. How could you not be willing to endure suffering for him who is perfect and has already laid down his life for you? You see? Reflect on Christ. If Christ hadn't stood up under trial, you would not be able to either. You would grow weary. But because he has... You can as well. God will not give you anything beyond what you can bear, but will with every temptation provide a way of escape. Two final exhortations for you. First of all, make suffering count. If God has planned your suffering and has a purpose for your suffering, then allow God to accomplish His purpose in your suffering. And that's why I say, ask, is there anything in my life that God is trying to correct? Is there something in my life of which I need to repent? 
Have I brought this upon myself because of being foolish with God's resources? Have I misused the money that God has entrusted to me? Have I misused the healthy body that God has given me? Have I squandered my opportunity to develop a deep relationship with my child? What is God teaching you through your suffering? Is there a possibility that it's come upon you as discipline? Is my gaze upon my circumstances or upon Christ? Is my gaze on my earthly rewards what I demand and need to exist? Or is it upon the heavenly rewards? Do I believe that God has ordained my suffering and is using it to increase my faith? Make your suffering count. Second exhortation is embrace your suffering as a gift from God. Embrace your suffering as a gift from God. Satan was trying to prove that Job wasn't righteous enough to continue to love God. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough to continue to love God when He takes everything out of the way. When He when He cuts the legs out from underneath you. You can't keep following God. And he was also trying to prove, Satan was, that God's not worthy to be served apart from His gifts. If He doesn't give you anything, He's not. He's no God at all. But one of the great ironies in the book is that Job suffers because he is righteous. Job suffers because he is righteous. Now, his friends don't believe this. They think he suffered because he sinned against God, right? But we know that God did not allow Job to to face these trials because of discipline. God wasn't disciplining Job, but because of virtue. At the beginning of the book, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? who fears me and turns away from evil, that's why I'm going to allow you to let him suffer. Because he's righteous. That's why. In other words, Job's three friends, listen to this, were exempt from suffering because of their lack of virtue. They weren't righteous enough. If they were as virtuous as Job, they might have received these trials on them. But they were not as shining of examples as Job was. And so God passed over them and went to his, his, his diamond of a follower. Because you're righteous, Job, I will allow you to suffer and to present you before Satan as a worthy follower of me. Not because of anything in yourself, Job, because of the greatness of myself, God says. So because suffering is used for our good and because suffering is used to glorify God, the apostles could say in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. They were happy to do it. So when we see suffering come in our life, we need to recognize that God has a purpose in it. We may not know the purpose. It may be because He's trying to weed out some sin. It simply may be to just help us to learn obedience a little bit more. So that's why we can say with James, we can count it all joy 
when we fall into trials of various kinds because God uses it to produce patience in us and per- patience leads to perseverance. That perseverance is what we need to be counted as holy and without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, when we go through trials ourselves, we certainly would love to know why these things are happening. We'd like to have all the answers, and if not, that, that we, we could have the suffering removed from us. <clears throat> there are some in here who wrongly uh, accuse themselves and others of suffering for sin when it simply is innocent suffering. But there are others who are suffering because of some sin that needs to be weeded out. Give us the discernment to be able to see in ourselves and in others what you are doing through suffering. Help us not to speak on behalf of you where you have not spoken, particularly when we work with others who are suffering. Help us to to have discernment as we look at our own lives. Repent where we need to repent, but in it all, to have faith, put our focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who is willing to suffer for us even though we were unworthy. How much more should we be willing to suffer for Him who is worthy? Give us the grace to do so, we pray, and help us to count it all joy because we have a big picture perspective in our suffering. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.